0: Antony Ferrara heats his quarters like an inferno, collects brain-eating beetles, and wears an Egyptian ring. So why does Cairn suspect him of killing a swan? Sax Romer, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you and we really appreciate your support. We've set it up so that for a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. This way you can easily build out your classic audiobook library and you help to give more folks like you the chance to discover the classics in a curated and easily accessible format. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. We won a podcast award. The Academy of Interactive and Visual Arts has awarded the Classic Tales podcast with a W3 Gold Award. Juried by some titans in the top media firms, such as Disney, Condé Nast, and Microsoft, we share this honor with Trevor Noah's Daily Show podcast, MTV's Official Challenge podcast, Broadway Podcast Network, and a few others. Only the top 10% of those who entered were awarded the Gold Award. We're super psyched about that and very, very grateful. 813 the fourth novel in the Arsène Lupin series is now available. Head on over to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and pick up this fantastic adventure. If you'd like to save $2 when you get 813, simply enter the coupon code PODCAST. No subscription, no additional purchase necessary, just enter the word PODCAST and save 2 bucks. Thank you for your support. Today's story is from the creator of the Fu Manchu series, Sax Romer. It was originally titled, The Brood of the Witch Queen. I think that the unfortunate title is the reason that the book is not more well-known today. That, and the ending, isn't super great. Just putting that out there right now. But H.P. Lovecraft compared this book with Bram Stoker's Dracula, and many critics of the time considered it one of Romer's best. I've taken the liberty of releasing it as Night of the Necropolis. Hopefully, old Sax isn't turning too much in his grave with that. One of the things that really draws me to classic Halloween monsters is that they are steeped in literature. Obviously, Dracula and Frankenstein immediately come to mind with their respective baddies. There are many werewolf short stories, from Kipling's The Mark of the Beast to Murriott's The White Wolf of the Hearts Mountains. Alexandre Dumas even wrote a full-length, lackluster novel about a werewolf, clumsily translated as The Wolf Leader. I'm told Steinbeck also wrote a werewolf yarn. Mummy tales also abound in short fiction. Among the best are Conan Doyle's Lot No. 249, Louisa May Alcott's The Ring of Tote, and H.P. Lovecraft's Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. Among the less successful is Bram Stoker's novel jewel of the seven stars. Now, today's story isn't perfect by any means, it's not high literature, but when I read it, I felt that it really delivered the same feeling that I get when I watched the original movie of The Mummy with Boris Karloff. It's set up as a series of adventures where we can eventually piece together the identity of that devotee of ancient sorcery, Antony Ferrara. The similarities to Dracula are evident. Nobody believes in Egyptian sorcery. There's only one scholar who studied enough to stop him, etc. But what can I say? When it comes to magic rings, brain-eating beetles, vampires, ancient curses, Egyptian mummies and the like, I'm always up for it. I hope you are too. And now, Knight of the Necropolis, part 1 of 8, by Sax Romer. Prefatory Notice The strange deeds of Antony Ferrara, as herein related, are intended to illustrate certain phases of sorcery, as it was formerly practiced, according to numerous records, not only in ancient Egypt, but also in Europe, during the Middle Ages. In no case do the powers attributed to him exceed those which are claimed for a fully equipped adept, S.R. Chapter One, Antony Ferrara. Robert Cairn looked out across the quadrangle. The moon had just arisen, and it softened the beauty of the old college buildings, mellowed the harshness of time, Casting shadow pools beneath the cloisteresque arches to the west, and setting out the ivy in stronger relief upon the ancient walls. The barred shadow on the lichen stones beyond the elm, was cast by a hidden gate, and straight ahead, where, between a quaint chimney stack and a bartizan, a triangular patch of blue showed like spangled velvet, lay the Thames. It was from there the cooling breeze came. But Cairn's gaze was set upon a window almost directly ahead and west below the chimneys. Within the room to which it belonged, a lambent light played. Cairn turned to his companion, a ruddy and athletic-looking man, somewhat bovine in type, who, at the moment, was busily tracing out sections on a human skull, and checking his calculations from Ross's Diseases of the Nervous System. Sime, he said, what does Ferrara always have a fire in his rooms for at this time of the year? Sime glanced up irritably at the speaker. Cairn was a tall, thin Scotsman, clean-shaven, square-jawed, and with the crisp, light hair and grey eyes which often bespeak unusual virility. Aren't you going to do any work? He inquired pathetically I thought you'd come to give me a hand With my basal ganglia I shall go down on that And there you've been Stuck staring out of the window Wilson, in the end house Has got a most unusual brain Said Cairn With apparent irrelevance Has he? Snapped Sime. Yes, in a bottle His governor is at Bart's He sent it up yesterday You ought to see it Nobody will ever want to put your brain in a bottle, predicted the scowling Sime, and resumed his studies. Cairn relighted his pipe, staring across the quadrangle again. Then, You've never been in Ferrara's rooms, have you? He inquired. Followed a muffled curse, crash, and the skull went rolling across the floor. Look here, Cairn, cried Sime, I've only got a week or so now and my nervous system is frantically rocky. I shall go all to pieces on my nervous system. If you want to talk, go ahead. When you're finished, I can begin work. Right-o, said Cairn calmly, and tossed his pouch across. I want to talk to you about Ferrara. Go ahead, then. What is the matter with Ferrara? Well, replied Cairn, he's queer. That's no news, said Cime, filling his pipe. We all know he's a queer chap, but he's popular with women. He'd make a fortune as a nerve specialist. He doesn't have to. He inherits a fortune when Sir Michael dies. There's a pretty cousin too, isn't there? Inquired Cime, slyly. There is, replied Cairn. Of course, he continued. My governor and Sir Michael are bosom friends, and although I've never seen much of young Ferrara, At the same time, I've got nothing against him, but... He hesitated. Spit it out, urged Cime, watching him oddly. Well, it's silly, I suppose. But what does he want with a fire on a blazing night like this? Cime stared. Perhaps he's a throwback, he suggested lightly. The Ferrara's, although they are counted Scotch, aren't they? Must have been Italian originally. Spanish, corrected Cairn. They date from the son of Andrea Ferrara, the sword-maker, who was a Spaniard. Caesar Ferrara came with the Armada in 1588 as armourer. His ship was wrecked up in the Bay of Tobamori, and he got ashore and stopped. Married a Scotch lassie? Exactly. But the genealogy of the family doesn't account for Antony's habits. What habits? Well, look. Karen waved in the direction of the open window. What does he do in the dark all night with a fire going? Influenza? Nonsense. You've never been in his rooms, have you? No. Very few men have. But as I said before, he's popular with the women. What do you mean? I mean there have been complaints. Any other man would have been sent down. You think he has influence? Influence of some sort, undoubtedly and I can see you have serious doubts about the man, as I have myself. So I can unburden my mind. You recall that sudden thunderstorm on Thursday? Rather, quite upset me for work. I was out in it. I was lying in a punt in the backwater, you know, our backwater. Lazy dog. To tell you the truth, I was trying to make up my mind whether I should abandon Bones and take the post on the planet, which has been offered me. Pills for the pen, Harley for fleet. Did you decide? No, then. Something happened, which quite changed my line of reflection. The room was becoming cloudy with tobacco smoke. It was delightfully still. Karen resumed. A water rat rose within a foot of me, and a kingfisher was busy on a twig almost at my elbow. Twilight was just creeping along, and I could hear nothing but faint creakings of skulls from the river and sometimes the drip of a punt-pole. I thought the river seemed to become suddenly deserted. It grew quite abnormally quiet and abnormally dark, but I was so deep in reflection that it never occurred to me to move. Then a flotilla of swans came round the bend with Apollo, you know Apollo, the King Swan, at their head. By this time it had grown tremendously dark, but it never occurred to me to ask myself why. The swans, gliding along so noiselessly, might have been phantoms. A hush, a perfect hush, settled down. Seemed that hush was the prelude to a strange thing, an unholy thing. Cairn rose excitedly and strode across to the table, kicking the skull out of his way. It was the storm gathering snapped C. May. It was something else gathering. Listen. It got yet darker, but for some inexplicable reason. Although I must have heard the thunder muttering, I couldn't take my eyes off the swans. Then it happened. The thing I came here to tell you about, I must tell somebody. The thing that I am not going to forget in a hurry. He began to knock out the ash from his pipe. Go on. "'directed Sime tersely. "'The big swan, Apollo, "'was within ten feet of me. "'He swam in open water, "'clear of the others. "'No living thing touched him. "'Suddenly, "'uttering a cry "'that chilled my very blood, "'a cry that I never heard "'from a swan in my life, "'he rose in the air, "'his huge wings extended, "'like a tortured phantom, Sime, "'I can never forget it. Six feet clear of the water.' The uncanny wail became a stifled hiss, and sending up a perfect fountain of water, I was deluged. The poor old king swan fell, beat the surface with his wings, and was still. Well, the other swans glided off like ghosts. Several heavy raindrops pattered on the leaves above. I admit I was scared. Apollo lay with one wing right in the punt. I was standing up. I had jumped to my feet when the thing occurred. I stooped and touched the wing. The bird was quite dead, Sime. I pulled the swan's head out of the water, and his neck was broken. No fewer than three vertebrae fractured. A cloud of tobacco smoke was wafted towards the open window. It isn't one in a million who could wring the neck of a bird like Apollo, Sime. But it was done before my eyes "'without the visible agency of God or man. "'As I dropped him and took to the pole, "'the storm burst. "'A clap of thunder spoke with the voice of a thousand cannon, "'and I pulled for bare life from that haunted backwater. "'I was drenched to the skin when I got in, "'and I ran up all the way from the stage. "'Well,' rapped the other again, "'as Cairn paused to refill his pipe. It was seeing the firelight flickering at Ferrara's window that led me to do it. I don't often call on him, but I thought that a rub-down before the fire and a glass of toddy would put me right. The storm had abated as I got to the foot of his stair, only a distant rolling of thunder. Then, out of the shadows, it was quite dark, into the flickering light of the lamp came somebody, all muffled up. I started horribly. It was a girl, quite a pretty girl too, but very pale, and with over-bright eyes. She gave me one quick glance up into my face, muttered something, in apology, I think, and drew back again into her hiding place. He's been warned, growled Simé. It will be noticed to quit next time. I ran upstairs and banged on Ferrara's door. He didn't open at first, but shouted out to know who was knocking. "'When I told him, he let me in "'and closed the door very quickly. "'As I went in, a pungent cloud met me. "'Incense. "'Incense? "'His room smelt like a joss-house. "'I told him so. "'He said he was experimenting with kiffy, "'the ancient Egyptian stuff used in the temples. "'It was all dark and hot, Phew, like a furnace. "'Ferrara's rooms always were odd, "'but since the long vacation I hadn't been in, Good Lord, they're disgusting. Ah, Ferrara spent vacation in Egypt. I suppose he's brought things back. Things? Yes, unholy things. But that brings me to something, too. I ought to know more about the chap than anybody. Sir Michael Ferrara and the governor have been friends for thirty years. But my father is oddly reticent, quite singularly reticent, regarding Antony. Anyway, have you heard about him? In Egypt I've heard he got into trouble For his age he has a devil of a queer reputation There's no disguising it What sort of trouble? I've no idea Nobody seems to know But I heard from young Ashby That Ferrara was asked to leave There's some tale about Kitchener By Kitchener, Ashby says But I don't believe it Well Ferrara lighted a lamp An elaborate silver thing "'and I found myself in a kind of nightmare museum. "'There was an unwrapped mummy there, "'the mummy of a woman. "'I can't possibly describe it. "'He had pictures, too, photographs. "'I shan't try to tell you what they represented. "'I'm not thin-skinned, but there are some subjects "'that no man anxious to avoid bedlam "'would willingly investigate. "'On the table by the lamp stood a number of objects "'such as I had never seen in my life before.' Evidently of great age He swept them into a cupboard Before I had time to look long Then he went off to get a bath towel Slippers and so forth As he passed the fire He threw something in A hissing tongue of flame leapt up And died down again What did he throw in? I am not absolutely certain So I won't say what I think it was At the moment Then He began to help me shed my saturated flannels, and he set a kettle on the fire and so forth. You know the personal charm of the man. But there was an unpleasant sense of something, what shall I say, sinister. Ferrara's ivory face was more pale than usual, and he conveyed the idea that he was chewed up, exhausted, beads of perspiration were on his forehead. Heat of his rooms? No. "'said Cairn shortly. "'It wasn't that. "'I had a rub down and borrowed some slacks. "'Ferrara brewed grog and pretended to make me welcome. "'Now I come to something which I can't forget. "'It may be a mere coincidence, but "'he has a number of photographs in his rooms, good ones, "'which he has taken himself. "'I am not speaking now of the monstrosities, the outrages. "'I mean views and girls, particularly girls.' Well, standing on a queer little easel right under the lamp was a fine picture of Apollo the Swan, lord of the backwater. Sime stared dully through the smoke-haze. It gave me a sort of shock, continued Cairn. It made me think, harder than ever, of the thing he had thrown in the fire. Then, in his photographic Zenana, was a picture of a girl whom I am almost sure was the one I had met at the bottom of the stair. Another was of Myra Duquesne. His cousin? Yes. I felt like tearing it from the wall. In fact, the moment I saw it, I stood up to go. I wanted to run to my rooms and strip the man's clothes off my back. It was a struggle to be civil any longer. See May, if you had seen that swan die... Simé walked over to the window. "'I have a glimmering of your monstrous suspicions,' he said slowly. "'The last man to be kicked out of an English varsity for this sort of thing, "'as far as I know, was Dr. D. of St. John's, Cambridge, "'and that's going back to the sixteenth century. "'I know. It's utterly preposterous, of course, "'but I had to confide in somebody. "'I'll shift off now, Simé,' Simei nodded, staring from the open window. As Cairn was about to close the outer door, Cairn, cried Simei, since you are now a man of letters and leisure, you might drop in and borrow Wilson's brains for me. All right, shouted Cairn. Down in the quadrangle, he stood for a moment, reflecting. Then, acting upon a sudden resolution, he strode over towards the gate and ascended Ferrara's stair. For some time he knocked at the door in vain, but he persisted in his clamoring, arousing the ancient echoes. Finally, the door was opened. Antony Ferrara faced him. He wore a silver-gray dressing gown, trimmed with white swans down, above which his ivory throat rose statuesque. The almond-shaped eyes, black as night, Gleamed strangely beneath the low, smooth brow The lank black hair appeared lusterless by comparison His lips were very red In his whole appearance there was something repellently effeminate Can I come in? Demanded Karen abruptly Is it something important? Ferrara's voice was husky, but not unmusical Why, are you busy? Well, uh, Ferrara smiled oddly. Oh, a visitor, snapped Cairn. Not at all. Accounts for your delay in opening, said Cairn, and turned on his heel. Mistook me for the proctor in person, I suppose. Good night. Ferrara made no reply. But although he never once glanced back, Cairn knew that Ferrara, leaning over the rail above, was looking after him. It was as though elemental heat were beating down upon his head. Chapter 2. The Phantom Hands A week later, Robert Cairn quitted Oxford to take up the newspaper appointment offered to him in London. It may have been due to some mysterious design of a hidden providence that Cime phoned him early in the week about an unusual case In one of the hospitals Walton is junior house surgeon there He said And he can arrange for you To see the case She, the patient Undoubtedly died From some rare nervous affection I have a theory, etc The conversation became technical Cairn went to the hospital And by courtesy of Walton Whom he had known at Oxford Was permitted to view the body the symptoms which may has got to hear about, explained the surgeon, raising the sheet from the dead woman's face. Ah, uh, he broke off. Cairn had suddenly exhibited a ghastly pallor. He clutched at Walton for support. My God! Cairn, still holding on to the other, stooped over the discolored face. It had been a pretty face when warm life had tinted its curves. Now it was congested. Awful. Two heavy discolorations showed, one on either side of the region of the larynx. What on earth is wrong with you? demanded Walton. I thought, gasped Cairn, for a moment that I knew. Really? I wish you did. We can't find out anything about her. Have a good look. No, said Cairn, mastering himself with an effort. A chance resemblance, that's all. He wiped the beads of perspiration From his forehead You look jolly shaky Commended Walton Is she like someone you know very well? No, not at all Now that I come to consider the features But it was a shock at first What on earth caused death? Asphyxia Answered Walton shortly Can't you see? Someone strangled her And she was brought here too late? Not at all, my dear chap Nobody strangled her She was brought here in a critical state four or five days ago by one of the slum priests who keep us so busy. We diagnosed it as exhaustion from lack of food, with other complications. But the case was doing rather well up to last night. She was recovering strength. Then, at about one o'clock, she sprang up in bed and fell back, choking. By the time the nurse got to her, it was all over. But the marks on her throat... Walton shrugged his shoulders, there they are. Our men are keenly interested. It's absolutely unique. Young Shaw, who has a mania for the nervous system, sent a long account up to Sime, who suffers from a similar form of aberration. Yes, Sime phoned me. It's nothing to do with nerves, said Walton contemptuously. Don't ask me to explain it, but it's certainly no nerve case. One of... The other patients, my dear chap, the other patients were all fast asleep. The nurse was at her table in the corner, and in full view of the bed the whole time. I tell you, no one touched her. How long elapsed before the nurse got to her? Possibly half a minute. But there is no means of learning when the paroxysm commenced. The leaping up in bed probably marked the end and not the beginning of the attack. Cairn experienced a longing for the fresh air. It was as though some evil cloud hovered around and about the poor unknown. Strange ideas, horrible ideas, conjectures based upon imaginings all but insane, flooded his mind darkly. Leaving the hospital, which harbored a grim secret, he stood at the gate for a moment and decided what to do. His father, Dr. Cairn, was out of London, or he would certainly have sought him in this hour of sore perplexity. "'What in heaven's name is behind it all?' he asked himself. For he knew beyond doubt that the girl who lay in the hospital was the same that he had seen one night at Oxford, was the girl whose photograph he had found in Antony Ferrara's rooms. He formed a sudden resolution. A taxicab was passing at that moment, and he hailed it, giving it Sir Michael Ferrara's address. He could scarcely trust himself to think, but frightful possibilities presented themselves to him, repel them how he might. London seemed to grow dark, overshadowed, as once he had seen a Thames backwater grow. He shuddered, as though from a physical chill. The house of the famous Egyptian scholar, dull white behind its rampart of trees, presented no unusual appearances to his anxious scrutiny. What he feared, he scarcely knew. What he suspected, he could not have defined. Sir Michael, said the servant, was unwell and could see no one. That did not surprise Cairn. Sir Michael had not enjoyed good health since malaria had laid him low in Syria. But Miss Duquesne was home. Cairn was shown into the long, Low-ceiled room, which contained so many priceless relics of a past civilization. Upon the bookcase stood the stately ranks of volumes, which had carried the fame of Europe's foremost Egyptologist to every corner of the civilized world. This queerly furnished room held many memories for Robert Cairn, who had known it from childhood. But latterly, it had always appeared to him in his daydreams as the setting for a dainty figure. It was here that he had first met Myra Duquesne, Sir Michael's niece, when, fresh from a Norman convent, she had come to shed light and gladness upon the somewhat somber household of the scholar. He often thought of that day. He could recall every detail of the meeting. Myra Duquesne came in, pulling aside the heavy curtains that hung in the arched entrance, With a granite Osiris flanking her slim figure on one side and a gilded sarcophagus on the other, she burst upon the visitor, a radiant vision in white. The light gleamed through her soft brown hair, forming a halo for a face that Robert Cairn knew for the sweetest in the world. Why, Mr. Cairn, she said and blushed entrancingly. We thought you had forgotten us. That's not a little bit likely, he replied, taking her proffered hand, and there was that in his voice and in his look which made her lower her frank grey eyes. I've only been in London a few days, and I find that press work is more exacting than I had anticipated. Did you want to see my uncle very particularly? asked Myra. In a way, yes. I suppose he could not manage to see me, Myra shook her head. Now that the flush of excitement had left her face, Cairn was concerned to see how pale she was and what dark shadows lurked beneath her eyes. Sir Michael is not seriously ill, he asked quickly. Only one of the visual attacks. Yes, at least it began with one. She hesitated, and Cairn saw to his consternation that her eyes became filled with tears. The real loneliness of her position, now that her guardian was ill, the absence of a friend in whom she could confide her fears, suddenly grew apparent to the man who sat watching her. You are tired out, he said gently. You have been nursing him? She nodded and tried to smile. Who is attending? Sir Elwyn Groves, but... Shall I wire for my father? We wired for him yesterday. What? To Paris? Yes, at my uncle's wish. Cairn started. Then he thinks he is seriously ill himself. I cannot say, answered the girl wearily. His behavior is queer. He will allow no one in his room and barely consents to see Sir Elwyn. Then, twice recently, he has awakened in the night and made a singular request. What is that? He has asked me to send for his solicitor in the morning, speaking harshly and almost as though he hated me. I don't understand. Have you complied? Yes, and on each occasion he has refused to see the solicitor when he has arrived. I gather that you have been acting as night attendant? I remain in an adjoining room. He is always worse at night. Perhaps it is telling on my nerves, but... Last night Again she hesitated As though doubting the wisdom of further speech But a brief scrutiny of Karen's face With deep anxiety to be read in his eyes Determined her to proceed I had been asleep And I must have been dreaming For I thought that a voice was chanting Quite near to me Chanting? Yes It was horrible in some way then a sensation of intense coldness came. It was as though some icily cold creature fanned me with its wings. I cannot describe it, but it was numbing. I think I must have felt as those poor travellers do, who succumb to the temptation to sleep in the snow. Karen surveyed her anxiously, for in its essentials this might be a symptom of a dreadful ailment. I aroused myself, however, she continued but experienced an unaccountable dread of entering my uncle's room. I could hear him muttering strangely, and I forced myself to enter. I saw, oh, how can I tell you? You will think me mad. She raised her hands to her face. She was trembling. Robert Cairn took them in his own, forcing her to look up. Tell me, he said quietly. The curtains were drawn back. I distinctly remembered having closed them, but they were drawn back, and the moonlight was shining onto the bed. Bad. He was dreaming. But was I dreaming? Mr. Cairn, two hands were stretched out over my uncle. Two hands that swayed slowly up and down in the moonlight. Cairn leapt to his feet, Passing his hand over his forehead Go on, he said I I cried out, but not loudly I think I was very near to swooning The hands were withdrawn into the shadow And my uncle awoke and sat up He asked in a low voice If I were there, and I ran to him Yes He ordered me very coldly to phone for his solicitor At nine o'clock this morning And then fell back and was asleep again almost immediately. The solicitor came and was with him for nearly an hour. He sent for one of his clerks, and they both went away at half-past ten. Uncle has been in a sort of dazed condition ever since. In fact, he has only once aroused himself to ask for Dr. Cairn. I had a telegram sent immediately. The governor will be here tonight, said Cairn confidently. Tell me. The hands which you thought you saw, was there anything peculiar about them? In the moonlight, they seemed to be of a dull white color. There was a ring on one finger. A green ring. Oh! She shuddered. I can see it now. You would know it again? Anywhere. Actually, there was no one in the room, of course. No one. It was some awful illusion. But I can never forget it. Chapter 3 The Ring of Tote. Half Moon Street was very still. Midnight had sounded nearly half an hour. But still, Robert Cairn paced up and down his father's library. He was very pale, and many times he glanced at a book which lay open upon the table. Finally, he paused before it and read once again certain passages. In the year 1571, it recorded, the notorious Trois-Echelles was executed in the Place de Grève. He confessed before the king, Charles Ninth that he performed marvels. Admiral de Coligny, who was also present, recollected the death of two gentlemen. He added that they were found black, and swollen he turned over the page with a hand none too steady the famous maréchal d'ancre concini concini he read was killed by a pistol shot on the drawbridge of the louvre by vitry captain of the bodyguard on the 24th of april 1617 it was proved that the maréchal and his wife made use of wax images which they kept in coffins Cairn shut the book hastily and began to pace the room again. Oh, it is utterly fantastically incredible, he groaned. Yet with my own eyes I saw. He stepped to a bookshelf and began to look for a book which, so far as his slight knowledge of the subject bore him, would possibly throw light upon the darkness. But he failed to find it. Despite the heat of the weather, The library seemed to have grown chilly. He pressed the bell. Marston, he said to the man who presently came, you must be very tired, but Dr. Cairn will be here within an hour. Tell him that I have gone to Sir Michael Ferrara's. But it's after twelve o'clock, sir. I know it is. Nevertheless, I am going. Very good, sir. You will wait there for the doctor? Exactly, Marston. Good night. Good night, sir. Robert Cairn went out into Half Moon Street. The night was perfect, and the cloudless sky lavishly gemmed with stars. He walked on heedlessly, scarce noting in which direction. An awful conviction was with him, growing stronger each moment, that some mysterious menace, some danger unclassifiable, threatened Myra Duquesne. What did he suspect? He could give it no name. How should he act? He had no idea. Sir Elwyn Groves, whom he had seen that evening, had hinted broadly at mental trouble as the solution of Sir Michael Ferrara's peculiar symptoms. Although Sir Michael had had certain transactions with his solicitor during the early morning, he had apparently forgotten all about the matter, according to the celebrated physician. Between ourselves, Cairn, Sir Elwyn had confided, I believe he altered his will." The inquiry of a taxi driver interrupted Cairn's meditations. He entered the vehicle, giving Sir Michael Ferrara's address. His thoughts persistently turned to Myra Duquesne, who at that moment would be lying, listening for the slightest sound from the sick room, who would be fighting down fear that she might do her duty to her guardian. Fear of the waving phantom hands. The cab sped through the almost empty streets, and at last, rounding a corner, rolled up the tree-lined avenue, past three or four houses, lighted only by the glitter of the moon, and came to a stop before that of Sir Michael Ferrara. Lights shone from the many windows. The front porch was open, and light streamed out into the porch. My God, cried Cairn, leaping from the cab. My God, what has happened? A thousand fears, a thousand reproaches flooded his brain with frenzy. He went racing up to the steps and almost threw himself upon the man who stood half-dressed in the doorway. Felton, he whispered hoarsely. What has happened? Who? Sir Michael, sir, answered the man. I thought... His voice broke. You were the doctor, sir. Miss Myra, She fainted away, sir. Mrs. Hume is with her in the library now. Cairn thrust past the servant and ran into the library. The housekeeper and a trembling maid were bending over Myra Duquesne, who lay fully dressed, white and still, upon a chesterfield. Cairn unceremoniously grasped her wrist, dropped upon his knees and placed his ear to the still breast. Thank God, he said. It is only a swoon, Look after her, Mrs. Hume. The housekeeper, with set face, lowered her head, but did not trust herself to speak. Cairn went out into the hall and tapped Felton on the shoulder. The man turned with a great start. What happened? he demanded. Is Sir Michael? Felton nodded. Five minutes before you came, sir. His voice was hoarse with emotion. Miss Myra came out of her room. She thought someone called her. She rapped on Mrs. Hume's door and Mrs. Hume, who was just retiring, opened it. She also thought she had heard someone calling Miss Myra out on the stairhead. Well? There was no one there, sir. Everyone was in bed. I was just undressing myself. But there was a sort of faint perfume. Something like a church. "'Only disgusting, sir.' "'How disgusting? "'Did you smell it?' "'No, sir, never. "'Mrs. Hume and Miss Myra have noticed it in the house on other nights, "'and one of the maids, too. who was very strong, I'm told, last night. "'Oh, well, sir, as they stood by the door, "'they heard a horrid kind of choking scream. "'They both rushed to Sir Michael's room and—' "'Yes, yes?' "'He was lying half out of bed, sir.' "'Dead?' "'Seemed like he'd been strangled, they told me. "'And—' "'Who is with him now?' "'The man grew ever paler. "'No one, Mr. Cairn, sir. "'Miss Myra screamed out that there were two hands "'just unfastening from his throat, "'and as she and Mrs. Hume got to the door "'and there was no living soul in the room, sir, "'I might as well out with it. "'We were all afraid to go in.' Cairn turned and ran up the stairs. The upper landing was in darkness, and the door of the room, which he knew to be Sir Michael's, stood wide open. As he entered, a faint scent came to his nostrils. It brought him up short at the threshold, with a chill of supernatural dread. The bed was placed between the windows, and one curtain had been pulled aside, admitting a flood of moonlight. Cairn remembered that Myra had mentioned this circumstance in connection with the disturbance of the previous night. Who in God's name opened that curtain? He muttered. Fully in the cold white light lay Sir Michael Ferrara, his silver hair gleaming and his strong angular face upturned to the intruding rays. His glazed eyes were staring from their sockets. His face was nearly black and his fingers were clutching the sheets in a death grip. Karen had need of all his courage to touch him. He was quite dead. Someone was running up the stairs. Karen turned half-dazed, anticipating the entrance of a local medical man. Into the room ran his father, switching on the light as he did so. A grayish tinge showed through his ruddy complexion. He scarcely noticed his son. Ferrara, he cried, coming up to the bed. Ferrara! He dropped on his knees beside the dead man. Ferrara, old fellow. His cry ended in something like a sob. Robert Cairn turned, choking, and went downstairs. In the hall stood Felton and some other servants. Miss Duquesne? She has recovered, sir. Mrs. Hume has taken her to another bedroom. Cairn hesitated, then walked into the deserted library, where a light was burning. He began to pace up and down, clenching and unclenching his fists. Presently Felton knocked and entered. Clearly the man was glad of the chance to talk to someone. Mr. Antony has been phoned at Oxford, sir. I thought you might like to know. He is motoring down, sir, and will be here at four o'clock. Thank you, said Cairn shortly. Ten minutes later, his father joined him. He was a slim, well-preserved man, alert-eyed and active, yet he had aged five years in his son's eyes. His face was unusually pale, but he exhibited no other signs of emotion. Well, Rob, he said tersely, I can see you have something to tell me. I am listening. Robert Cairn leant back against a bookshelf. I have something to tell you, sir. And something to ask you. Tell your story first, then ask your question. My story begins in a Thames backwater. Dr. Cairn stared, squaring his jaw, but his son proceeded to relate, with some detail, the circumstances attendant upon the death of the King Swan. He went on to recount what took place in Antony Ferrara's rooms, and at the point where something had been taken from the table, "'and thrown into the fire. "'Stop,' said Dr. Cairn. "'What did he throw into the fire?' "'The doctor's nostrils quivered, "'and his eyes were ablaze "'with some hardly repressed emotion. "'I cannot swear to it, sir. "'Never mind. "'What do you think he threw in the fire?' "'A little image, "'of wax or something similar, "'an image of a a swan.' "'At that, despite his self-control, Dr. Cairn became so pale that his son leapt forward. All right, Rob. His father waved him away, and turning, walked slowly down the room. Go on, he said rather huskily. Robert Cairn continued his story up to the time that he visited the hospital where the dead girl lay. You can swear that she was the original of the photograph in Antony's rooms, And the same who was waiting at the foot of the stair? I can, sir. Go on. Again, the younger man resumed his story, relating what he had learned from Myra Duquesne, what she had told him about the phantom hands, what Felton had told him about the strange perfume perceptible in the house. The ring, interrupted Dr. Cairn. She would recognize it again? She says so. Anything else? Only that if some of your books are to be believed, sir, Trois-Echelles, D'Ancre, and others, have gone to the stake for such things in a less enlightened age. Less enlightened boy? Dr. Cairn turned his blazing eyes upon him. More enlightened, where the powers of hell were concerned. Then you think, think, have I spent half my life in such studies in vain? Did I labor with poor Michael Ferrara in Egypt and learn nothing? Just God! What an end to his labour. What a reward for mine. He buried his face in quivering hands. I cannot tell exactly what you mean by that, sir, said Robert Cairn. But it brings me to my question. Dr. Cairn did not speak, did not move. Who is Antony Ferrara? The doctor looked up at that and it was a haggard face he raised from his hands. You have tried to ask me that before. I ask now, sir, with better prospect of receiving an answer. Yet I can give you none, Rob. Why, sir? Are you bound to secrecy? In a degree, yes. But the real reason is this. I don't know. You don't know? I have said so. Good God, sir, you amaze me. I have always felt certain that he was really no Ferrara, but an adopted son, yet it had never entered my mind that you were ignorant of his origin. You have not studied the subjects which I have studied, nor do I wish that you should. Therefore it is impossible, at any rate now, to pursue that matter further. But I may perhaps supplement your researches into the history of Trois-Echelles and Concini-Concini. I believe you told me that you were looking in my library for some work, which you failed to find. I was looking for Monsieur Shabazz's translation of the Papyrus Harris. What do you know of it? I once saw a copy in Antony Ferrara's rooms. Dr. Cairn started slightly. Indeed. It happens that my copy is here. I lent it quite recently to Sir Michael. It is probably somewhere on the shelves. He turned on more lights and began to scan the rows of books. Presently, here it is, he said, and took down and opened the book on the table. This passage may interest you. He laid his finger upon it. His son bent over the book and read the following. Hi, the evil man was a shepherd. He had said, oh, that I might have a book of spells that would give me resistless power. He obtained a book of the formulas. By the divine powers of these he enchanted men. He obtained a deep vault furnished with implements. He made waxen images of men and love charms. And then he perpetrated all the horrors that his heart conceived. Flinders, Petrie, said Dr. Cairn, mentions the Book of Tote as another magical work conferring similar powers. But surely, sir, after all, is the twentieth century. This is mere superstition. I thought so, once, replied Dr. Cairn. But I have lived to know that Egyptian magic was a real and a potent force. A great part of it was no more than a kind of hypnotism. But there were other branches. Our most learned modern works are as children's nursery rhymes, besides such a writing as the Egyptian ritual of the dead. God forgive me, what have I done? You cannot reproach yourself in any way, sir. Can I not? Said Dr. Cairn hoarsely. Ah, Rob, you don't know. There came a rap on the door, and a local practitioner entered. This is a singular case, Dr. Cairn, he began diffidently. An autopsy? Nonsense! cried Dr. Cairn. Sir Elwyn Groves had foreseen it, so had I. But there are distinct marks of pressure on either side of the windpipe. Certainly, these marks are not uncommon in such cases. Sir Michael had resided in the East, and had contracted a form of plague. Virtually he died from it. The thing is highly contagious, and it is almost impossible to rid the system of it, A girl died in one of the hospitals this week, having identical marks on the throat. He turned to his son. You saw her, Rob? Robert Cairn nodded, and finally the local man withdrew, highly mystified but unable to contradict so celebrated a physician as Dr. Bruce Cairn. The latter seated himself in an armchair and rested his chin in the palm of his left hand. Robert Cairn paced restlessly about the library. Both were waiting, expectantly. At half-past two, Felton brought in a tray of refreshments, but neither of the men attempted to avail themselves of the hospitality. "'Miss Duquesne?' asked the younger. "'She has gone to sleep, sir.' "'Good,' muttered Dr. Cairn. "'Blessed is youth.' Silence fell again upon the man's departure, to be broken but rarely, despite the tumultuous thoughts of those two minds, until, at about a quarter to three, the faint sound of a throbbing motor brought Dr. Cairn sharply to his feet. He looked towards the window. Dawn was breaking. The car came roaring along the avenue and stopped outside the house. Dr. Cairn and his son glanced at one another. A brief tumult and hurried exchange of words sounded in the hall. Footsteps were heard ascending the stairs. Then came silence. The two stood side by side in front of the empty hearth, a haggard pair, fitly set in that desolate room, with the yellowing rays of the lamps shrinking before the first spears of dawn. Then, without warning, the door opened slowly and deliberately, and Antony Ferrara came in. His face was expressionless, ivory. His red lips were firm, and he drooped his head. But the long black eyes glinted and gleamed, as if they reflected the glow from a furnace. He wore a motor coat lined with leopard skin, and he was pulling off his heavy gloves. It is good of you to have waited, Doctor, he said in his huskily musical voice. You too. Cairn He advanced a few steps into the room Cairn was conscious Of a kind of fear But uppermost came a desire To pick up some heavy implement And crush this evilly effeminate Thing with the serpent eyes Then he found himself speaking The words seemed To be forced from his throat Antony Ferrara He said Have you read the Harris Papyrus? Ferrara dropped his glove, stooped and recovered it, and smiled faintly. No, he replied. Have you? His eyes were nearly closed, mere luminous slits. But surely, he continued, this is no time, Cairn, to discuss books. As my poor father's heir, and therefore your host, I beg of you to partake. A faint sound made him turn. Just within the door, where the light from the reddening library windows touched her as if with sanctity, stood Myra Duquesne in her night robe, her hair unbound and her little bare feet gleaming whitely upon the red carpet. Her eyes were wide open, vacant of expression, but set upon Antony Ferrara's ungloved left Hand. Ferrara turned slowly to face her until his back was towards the two men in the library. She began to speak in a toneless, unemotional voice, raising her finger and pointing at a ring which Ferrara wore. I know you now, she said. I know you, son of an evil woman. For you wear her ring, The sacred ring of Tote. You have stained that ring with blood, As she stained it, With the blood of those who loved and trusted you. I could name you, But my lips are sealed. I could name you, Brood of a witch, Murderer, For I know you now. Dispassionately, mechanically, she delivered her strange indictment. Over her shoulder appeared the anxious face of Mrs. Hume, finger to lip. My God! muttered Cairn. My God! What? Shh! His father grasped his arm. She is asleep. Myra Duquesne turned and quitted the room, Mrs. Hume hovering anxiously about her. Antony Ferrara faced around. His mouth was oddly twisted. She is troubled with strange dreams, he said very huskily. Clairvoyant dreams, Dr. Cairn addressed him for the first time. Do not glare at me in that way, for it may be that I know you too. Come, Rob. But Myra, Dr. Cairn, laid his hand upon his son's shoulder, fixing his eyes upon him steadily. Nothing in this house can injure Myra, he replied quietly. For good is higher than evil. For the present we can only go. Antony Ferrara stood aside as the two walked out of the library. Chapter Four At Ferrara's Chambers. Dr. Bruce Cairn swung around in his chair, lifting his heavy eyebrows interrogatively, as his son, Robert, entered the consulting room. Half Moon Street was bathed in almost tropical sunlight, but already the celebrated physician had sent those out from his house to whom the sky was overcast, whom the sun would gladden no more and a group of anxious-eyed sufferers yet awaited his scrutiny in an adjoining room. Hello, Rob. Do you wish to see me professionally? Robert Cairn seated himself upon a corner of the big table, shaking his head slowly. No, thanks, sir. I'm fit enough. But I thought you might like to know about the will. I do know. Since I was largely interested, German attended on my behalf. "'An urgent case detained me. "'He rang up earlier this morning. "'Oh, I see. "'Then perhaps I'm wasting your time. "'But it was a surprise, quite a pleasant one, "'to find that Sir Michael had provided for Myra, Miss Duquesne.' "'Dr. Cairn stared hard. "'What led you to suppose that he had not provided for his niece? "'She is an orphan, and he was her guardian.' Of course, he should have done so. But I was not alone in my belief that, during the peculiar state of mind which preceded his death, he had altered his will. In favour of his adopted son, Antony? Yes. I know you are afraid of it, sir. But as it turns out, they inherit equal shares, and the house goes to Myra. Mr. Antony Ferrara. He accentuated the name. Quite failed to conceal his chagrin. Indeed, rather, he was there in person, wearing one of his beastly fur coats, a fur coat with a thermometer of Africa, lined with civet cat of all abominations. Dr. Cairn turned to his table, tapping at the blotting pad with the tube of a stethoscope. I regret your attitude towards young Ferrara, Rob. His son started. Regretted? I don't understand why you yourself brought about an open rupture on the night of Sir Michael's death. Nevertheless, I am sorry. You know, since you were present, that Sir Michael has left his niece to my care. Thank God for that. I am glad too, although there are many difficulties. But furthermore, he enjoined me to keep an eye on Antony, yes. Yes, but heavens, he didn't know him for what he is. Dr. Cairn turned to him again. He did not. By a divine mercy he never knew what we know. But his clear eyes were raised to his son's. The charge is none the less sacred, boy. The younger man stared perplexedly. But he is nothing less than a His father's upraised hand checked the word on his tongue. I know what he is, Rob, even better than you do. But cannot you see how this ties my hands, seals my lips? Robert Cairn was silent, stupefied. Give me time to see my way clearly, Rob. At the moment, I cannot reconcile my duty and my conscience. I confess it. But give me time, If only as a move, as a matter of policy, keep in touch with Ferrara. You loathe him, I know, but we must watch him. There are other interests. Myra, Robert Cairn flushed hotly. Yes, I see. I understand. By heavens, it's a hard part to play, but be advised by me, Rob. Meet stealth with stealth. My boy... We have seen strange ends come to those who stood in the path of someone. If you had studied the subjects that I have studied, you would know that retribution, though slow, is inevitable. But be on your guard. I am taking precautions. We have an enemy. I do not pretend to deny it. And he fights with strange weapons. Perhaps I know something of those weapons too. And I am adopting certain measures." But one defence, and the one for you, is guile. Stealth. Robert Cairn spoke abruptly. He is installed in palatial chambers in Piccadilly. Have you been there? No. Call upon him. Take the first opportunity to do so. Had it not been for your knowledge of certain things which happened in a top set at Oxford, we might be groping in the dark now. You never liked Antony Ferrara. No men do but you used to call upon him in college. Continue to call upon him in town. Robert Cairn stood up and lighted a cigarette. Right you are, sir, he said. I'm glad I'm not alone in this thing. By the way, about Myra, for the present she remains at the house. There is Mrs. Hume and all the old servants. We shall see what is to be done later. You might run over and give her a look up, though. I will, sir. Goodbye. Goodbye, said Dr. Cairn, and pressed the bell which summoned Marston to usher out the caller and usher in the next patient. In Half Moon Street, Robert Cairn stood irresolute, for he was one of those whose mental moods are physically reflected. He might call upon Myra Duquesne, in which event he would almost certainly be asked to stay to lunch, or he might call upon Antony Ferrara, he determined upon the latter, though less pleasant, course. Turning his steps in the direction of Piccadilly, he reflected that this grim and uncanny secret which he shared with his father was like to prove prejudicial to his success in journalism. It was eternally uprising, demoniac, between himself and his work. The feeling of fierce resentment towards Antony Ferrara, which he cherished, grew stronger at every step he was the spider governing the web, the web that clamily touched Dr. Cairn, himself, Robert Cairn, and Myra Duquesne. Others there had been who had felt its touch, who had been drawn to the heart of the unclean labyrinth, and devoured. In the mind of Cairn, the figure of Antony Ferrara assumed the shape of a monster, a ghoul, an elemental spirit of evil, and now he was ascending the marble steps. Before the gates of the lift, he stood and pressed the bell. Ferrara's proved to be a first-floor suite, and the doors were opened by an eastern servant dressed in white. His beastly theatrical affectation again, muttered Cairn. The man should have been a music-hall illusionist. The visitor was salaamed into a small reception room, Of this apartment, the walls and ceiling were entirely covered by a fretwork in sandalwood, evidently oriental in workmanship. In niches, or doorless cupboards, stood curious-looking vases and pots. Heavy curtains of rich fabric draped the doors. The floor was of mosaic, and a small fountain played in the center. A cushioned divan occupied one side of the place, from which natural light was entirely excluded, and which was illuminated only by an ornate lantern swung from the ceiling. This lantern had panes of blue glass, producing a singular effect. A silver mibhara, or incense burner, stood near to one corner of the divan, and emitted a subtle perfume. As the servant withdrew, Good heavens, muttered Cairn disgustedly, Poor Sir Michael's fortune won't last long at this rate. He glanced at the smoking Mibhara. Phew, effeminate beast. Ambergris. No more singular anomaly could well be pictured than that afforded by the lean, neatly groomed Scotsman, with his fresh, clean-shaven face and typically British air, in this setting of eastern voluptuousness the dusky servitor drew back a curtain and waved him to enter, bowing low as the visitor passed. Cairn found himself in Antony Ferrara's study. A huge fire was blazing in the grate, rendering the heat of the study almost insufferable. It was, he perceived, an elaborated copy of Ferrara's room at Oxford, infinitely more spacious, of course, but by reason of the rugs, cushions, and carpets with which its floor was strewn, suggestive of great opulence. But the littered table was there, with its nameless instruments and its extraordinary silver lamp. The mummies were there, the antique volumes, rolls of papyrus, preserved snakes and cats and ibises, statuettes of Isis, Osiris, and other Nile deities were there. The many photographs of women, too. Cairn had dubbed it at Oxford, the Zenana. Above all, there was Antony Ferrara. He wore the silver-gray dressing gown trimmed with white swans down, in which Cairn had seen him before. His statuesque ivory face was set in a smile, which yet was no smile of welcome. The over-red lips smiled alone. The long, glittering dark eyes were joyless almost beneath the straightly penciled brows, sinister. Save for the short, lusterless hair, it was the face of a handsome, evil woman. My dear Cairn, what a welcome interruption. How good of you. There was a strange music in his husky tones. He spoke unemotionally, falsely, but Cairn could not deny the charm of that unique voice. It was possible to understand how women, some women, would be as clay in the hands of the man who had such a voice as that. His visitor nodded shortly. Cairn was a poor actor. Already his role was oppressing him. Whilst Ferrara was speaking, one found a sort of fascination in listening. But when he was silent, he repelled. Ferrara may have been conscious of this, for he spoke much and well. You have made yourself jolly comfortable, said Cairn. Why not, my dear Cairn? Every man has within him something of the Sybarite. Why crush a propensity so delightful? The Spartan philosophy is palpably absurd. It is that of one who finds himself in a garden filled with roses, and who holds his nostrils, who perceives their shady bowers, but chooses to burn in the sun, who, ignoring the choice fruits which tempt his hand and court his palate, stoops to pluck bitter herbs from the wayside. I see, snapped Cairn. Aren't you thinking of doing any more work, then? Work? Antony Ferrara smiled and sank upon a heap of cushions. Forgive me, Cairn but I leave it gladly and confidently to more robust characters such as your own. He proffered a silver box of cigarettes, but Cairn shook his head, balancing himself on a corner of the table. No, thanks. I have smoked too much already. My tongue is parched. My dear fellow, Ferrara rose. I have a wine which, I declare, you will never have tasted but which you will pronounce to be nectar. It is made in Cyprus. Cairn raised his hand in a way that might have reminded a nice observer of his father. Thank you, nevertheless. Some other time, Ferrara. I am no wine man. A whiskey and soda, or a burly British B&S, even a sporty Scotch and Polly. There was a suggestion of laughter in the husky voice now, of a sort of Contemptuous banter. But Cairn stolidly shook his head and forced a smile. Many thanks, but it's too early. He stood up and began to walk about the room, inspecting the numberless oddities which it contained. The photographs he examined with supercilious curiosity. Then passing to a huge cabinet, he began to peer in at the rows of amulets, statuettes, and other unclassifiable objects with which it was laden. Ferrara's voice came. That head of a priestess on the left cairn is of great interest. The brain had not been removed, and quite a colony of Dermistis beetles had propagated in the cavity. Those creatures never saw the light cairn, yet I assure you that they had eyes. I have nearly forty of them in the small glass case on the table there, you might like to examine them. Cairn shuddered, but felt impelled to turn and look at these gruesome relics. In a square glass case, he saw the creatures. They lay in rows on a bed of moss. One might almost have suspected that unclean life yet survived in the little black insects. They were an unfamiliar species to Cairn, being covered with unusually long, black hair, except upon the root of the wing cases, where they were of brilliant orange. The perfect pupae of this insect are extremely rare, added Ferrara informatively. Indeed, replied Cairn. He found something physically revolting in that group of beetles, whose history had begun and ended in the skull of a mummy. Filthy things, he said. Why do you keep them? Ferrara shrugged his shoulders. Who knows, he answered enigmatically, they might prove useful some day. A bell rang, and from Ferrara's attitude it occurred to Cairn that he was expecting a visitor. I must be off, he said accordingly. And indeed he was conscious of a craving for the cool and comparatively clean air of Piccadilly. He knew something of the great evil which dwelt within this man whom he was compelled, by singular circumstances, to tolerate. But the duty began to irk. If you must, was the reply. Of course, your press work, no doubt, is very exacting. The note of badinage was discernible again, but Cairn passed out into the Mandara without replying, where the fountain plashed coolly and the silver mibhara "'sent up its pencils of vapour. "'The outer door was opened by the Oriental servant, "'and Ferrara stood and bowed to his departing visitor. "'He did not proffer his hand. "'Until our next meeting, Cairn. "'Es-salam "'Peace be with you,' he murmured, "'as the Moslems say. "'But indeed I shall be with you in spirit, dear Cairn. There was something in the tone wherein he spoke those last words that brought Cairn up short. He turned, but the doors closed silently. A faint breath of ambergris was borne to his nostrils. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Night of the Necropolis, Part 1 of 8 by Sax Romer. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and pick up your copy of 813, The Fourth Arsene Lupin Adventure. And please rate and review us if you can. It really helps other folks to find our show. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.